0: Hi, this is True Crime Island, I'm your host Cambo, and this is another True Crime Podcast. It's the 9th of June, 2008. Friends had become worried that they had not been able to contact their friend Travis Alexander for several days. They go to his home and enter the residence. They go upstairs to his bedroom and in his bathroom they find his decomposing corpse lying in a pool of blood. Police are called and a crime scene established. This is the story of Jody Arias and the murder of Travis Alexander. So let's get a little background on this Travis Alexander guy. Travis was born July 28, 1977 in Riverside, California. His parents were drug addicts, and after his father's death in July 1997, Travis and his seven siblings were taken in by their paternal grandmother, Norma Savi. She introduced them to the Mormon religion. During high school, Travis really got into it, and when he graduated high school, he went on a two-year mission in Denver, Colorado. He then moved to Mesa, Arizona for the strong Mormon community they have there. Travis was a salesman for PPL, which was prepaid legal services, a legal services company. He also worked as a motivational speaker for PPL. Also, he was the author of an e-book, Raising You, which was published in 2013 by his family after they found it on his hard drive. Now, I won't get into the background of Jody Arias yet, so let me tell you a bit about the events of June 9, 2008. So his friends have just called police after discovering Travis's body in the bathroom of his bedroom suite. They awaken the sleeping roommates and they all go outside. Out the front of the house is Michelle Lowry, who originally called police, her boyfriend, Dallin Forrest. Also, there was uh, Marie Hall, who was supposed to go to Mexico with Travis in the morning. Enrique Cortez and Zachary Billings. They were both Travis's roommates and Zachary's girlfriend, Amanda McBrien. So police turn up, call, they call in detectives and at 11.50pm, Detective Esteban Flores attends the scene. Now a lot of the following information will be directly from the investigation report. Flores reports that he arrives at the scene at 11.50pm. He goes upstairs and in the master bathroom he sees the body of Travis lying in the shower. The body appeared as though it had been in the bathroom for at least a day or two and it had what appeared to be wounds to the neck and chest area. At this time officers start taking statements from the friends gathered outside. Here's an extract from the investigation report. The information they received was that the homeowner and possible victim was Travis Alexander. He'd not been seen since the following week. The two roommates, Zachary Billings and Enrique Cortez, both stated they last saw and spoke to Travis approximately four to five days prior. They knew Travis had a trip to Mexico scheduled, and they just assumed he'd already left. They stated it wasn't unusual for Travis to leave without telling them. They didn't suspect anything was wrong until Travis's friends arrived and advised them they hadn't heard from Travis in several days. They mentioned his Mexico trip and that was scheduled for the following morning, but no one had been able to contact him. Marie Hall was the girl that was due to go to Mexico with Travis. She was concerned about Travis's welfare, since they were scheduled to leave for Mexico in the morning, but he was not answering his phone and not returning voice messages. Since she could not contact him by phone, she decided to drive over and contact him in person. She knocked on the door, but no one answered. She decided to call two other friends identified as Michelle Lowry and Michelle's boyfriend, Dallin Forrest. She told them what was happening and they came right over to help. They were able to gain entry into the house through the garage using a keypad code att- obtained from another friend. While in the house, they contacted Travis's roommate Zachary and his girlfriend Amanda McBrian, who were in one of the other upstairs bedrooms. They asked Zachary if they had seen Travis and he responded by saying he thought Travis had gone to Mexico and hadn't seen him in several days. They checked Travis's bedroom door and found it was locked. They were able to find a key to the bedroom door. They opened it, only to discover what appeared to be blood in the carpet leading to the master bathroom. They also discovered large amounts of dried blood throughout the bathroom floor and walls. After a closer look in the bathroom, they found a body of a deceased male sitting in the shower with the door open. It appeared that the deceased was Travis, so they exited and called the authorities. The other roommate, Enrico Cortez, was asleep in his room, so they informed him of the situation and they all exited the house. Now this is where the name Jodi Arias started to be bandied around by some of the friends. So who is this Jodi Arias? Well, she was born on July 9, 1980, in Salinas, California. She and Travis met in September 2006 at a prepaid legal services conference located in Las Vegas, Nevada. On November 26, 2006, Arius was baptized into the Latter-day Saint faith by Travis, and as of February 2, 2007, Travis and Arius were a couple. After the two broke up on on June 29, 2007, Arius moved to Mesa, Arizona, until April 2008, at which time she moved to her grandparents' house in Eureka, California. So they were officially dating for a few months, but then after they break up, she moves to Mesa to be closer to Travis. That's real stalker-type behaviour. So while police and the friends are out front, this is where police start to hear some interesting things about Jody. It was said that if anyone was to do harm to Travis, they needed to look at Jodie as she used to live with Travis and had recently broken up. Although she'd moved back to California, she was still hanging around and that Travis had had his tyres slashed and apparently Jodie had stolen Travis's personal journal, she had his email passwords and had let Travis know she knew about the other girls he was dating. While the group were waiting out the front, they received a call from Jody wanting to know what was going on and that she wanted to talk to the investigating officers. So let's go to the initial crime scene observations made by the detectives. When they entered the front door, they noticed a strong odour evident throughout the house. The house appeared to be clean and nothing out of order. They proceeded upstairs to the master bedroom and next to the master bedroom was a large game media room and it was noted that there was a camera bag on the floor with the camera missing. Once in the master bedroom, they noticed a large reddish-brown stain on the carpet near the door, which continued down along a tiled hallway, which led to the master bathroom. There was no linen on the bed, and the pillows were on a chair. In the bathroom, there was the body of the deceased in the shower. The body was in a sitting position. The body had clear signs of decomposition, which included discoloration, marbling and skin slippage. A closer look revealed a large laceration on his neck, which began on the far left side of his neck and travelled all the way across to the right side. Also, a small puncture to the centre of the chest was seeping fluid and other lacerations and punctures to the chest appeared clear of blood or fluids, indicating they had been washed post-mortem. There were no weapons on or near the body, but without moving the body, it could not be determined if there were any under it. There were large amounts of blood all over the bathroom, the sink and the mirror. There were signs of blood splatter and cast off throughout the bathroom, indicating some type of struggle. They decided to exit the house at this time to get a warrant from a magistrate before continuing any further investigation. They exited via the laundry to the open garage and noticed a small reddish brown stain on the washing machine. The next morning, they executed the search warrant and entered the home. There were large amounts of blood found in the bathroom and it looked like there had been a struggle. The victim had several visible wounds to his torso, head, neck and hands. The unusual thing noticed was that most of his wounds had no blood flow, indicated they had been washed off post-mortem. A spent shell casing was found in the bathroom. It was discovered to be a Winchester .25 calibre. No gun was found inside the house. Several hairs and fibres were also collected. Once photographed, the body was moved to reveal the extent of his injuries. He had numerous wounds to his body, which indicated he had tried to defend himself. I'll go into the autopsy report a little later. His bedding was missing, and it was found in the dryer. The reddish-brown stain on the washing machine was examined and sample taken. Inside the washing machine, there was a digital camera which appeared to have been washed with several articles of clothing. The camera was severely water damaged but the memory card was intact. Travis's phone was discovered in his office downstairs and the last phone call was made at 12.13pm on the 4th of June 2008. There were other incoming calls after that time, but none were answered. His laptop was there, and that had last been accessed 4th of June, 4.19pm. Fingerprints were recovered from the bathroom, which included one which was in blood at the entrance to the bathroom. Police ended the search and handed the house over to the next of kin. Now let's have a little look at some of the interviews with friends at the house that night. First off, uh, let's have a look at Marie, also called Mimi Hall. She told police she'd met Travis about a year ago at church and had started hanging out together as friends since February. About a month ago, they'd made plans to go to Mexico and just two weeks ago, she made it clear she only wanted to be friends and would understand if he wanted to take someone else. It was too late to change plans, so they agreed to go as friends, and the trip was organized for June 10 at 9:30 in the morning. She last saw and spoke to him on Monday, the 2nd of June, at a church activity, but didn't see him at church on Sunday, the 8th. When she couldn't get hold of him all week, she began to worry and decided to go over to his house on the night of the 9th, where she didn't get an answer at the door. She then called Michelle Lowry and Dallin Forrest. She told them she was worried about Travis and met up with them back at Travis's house. They knocked on the door, got no answer, which was normal as the roommates would not answer if they weren't expecting anyone. They were able to get the garage door code and enter through there. They noticed his laptop and phone in his office, so they made contact with Zachary Billing, who was in his bedroom with his girlfriend. Zachary told him he hadn't seen Travis for several days and that he thought he may be in Mexico. Travis's bedroom door was locked so Zachary found some keys and he and Dylan entered his bedroom where they found Travis dead. Marie was asked about Jodie and although she didn't really know much about her, she had learned that she was kind of obsessive. She'd manipulated Travis's Facebook account and she also knew how to enter the house via the doggy door without being invited. She described Jodie as being a stalker ex and had moved closer to Travis after they had broken up. She also told of arguments they had had in the recent past. Other than that, she knew very little about Jody. Okay, now let's have a uh, look at some of the main points for Zach's interview. Zach had met him at church a few years before. He'd been renting a room for the past four months. He rents one room but has full access to the house. The other roommate, Enrique, moved in a few weeks ago. Travis met Enrique at church and that they all keep pretty much to themselves and don't socialise with each other at all. Last time he saw Travis was Thursday morning. Now, Zach says Thursday morning now, but later this would prove to be a false memory, as Travis was killed Wednesday night, but more on his time of death later. Zach said when he hadn't seen Travis for a few days, he thought he must have gone to Mexico early. When asked about Jodie, he said that he met her when he moved in and Travis would pay her to clean the house. When Travis broke up with her, she moved from California to Arizona to be closer to Travis. Often she would show up unannounced as Travis would leave the door unlocked. They would have arguments about her moving down to Mesa after they had broken up. He said Jodie had recently moved back to California. Zach explained that when he moved in, Travis was already dating another girl, but they broke up because Jodie would always be hanging around. So now we come to the first interview with Jody. On the 10th of June, Jody contacted police and gave an interview over the phone. Now this is weird as why would she want to inject herself into the investigation? So the basics of the interview were, Jodie stated she knew Travis and had dated him for uh, five months. They did have a sexual relationship. They had broken up 29th of June 2007, about a year before, but had stayed friends. She was currently in Eureka, California, near the Oregon border, and had not returned to Mesa, Arizona, since she moved in early April of 2008. Last time she spoke to Travis was Tuesday the 4th of June, between 8 and 9:30 p.m. She'd found out about Travis's death from a friend late on the 9th of June. So now the autopsy report comes in. 11 punctures to his upper back between the shoulder blades. Two large lacerations to the top and back of head. One puncture to the back of his neck and ear. Four punctures and lacerations to the chest. Three lacerations to the belly. One laceration across the throat, which severed the right cartoid artery and airway. Four incised lacerations to the left hand, these are defensive wounds. One incised laceration to the right thumb, also a defensive wound. One single gunshot to the right brow, projectile recovered in the left cheek of the victim. The lacerations and puncture wounds were consistent with a single-edged weapon at least 5 inches in length. Lack of stippling or gunshot residue or even soot around the gunshot wound indicated the gunshot was taken no closer than two or three feet away. Initial reports suggest the gunshot wound would not have been fatal but would possibly disable him temporarily. The knife wound to the back did not enter the chest cavity, therefore they were not fatal either. The defensive wounds to his hands show he did attempt to defend himself. The fatal wounds consisted of a single stab wound to the centre of his chest which punctured his superior vena cava. This wound, along with the final throat slicing, were the cause of death. Manner of death listed as homicide. If you want to have a look at the crime scene photos and autopsy, uh, just Google it. There are pl- plenty of them on the internet and uh, it's pretty gruesome. Okay, let's go through a, a few more statements. Glancy Talbot told police that she saw Jody at a PPL seminar on 5th of June and that Jody had been in contact with a person named Ryan Burns while she was on the road from Northern California to Utah for the conference. She mentioned that Ryan had told her that Jody left California on Tuesday the 3rd of June but didn't get to Utah until Thursday the 5th of June. Ryan told her that they'd lost contact with Jody for 24 hours or so during the trip. Jodie explained this by saying her phone was off to save battery and she'd needed a rest. When she did show up on Thursday, she was acting a little odd. Clancy said she was concerned because the trip only takes about 10 hours or so. Also, she turned up with brown hair rather than her usual blonde. Clancy also mentioned that since Travis had told Jodie he no longer wanted to be with her, that she'd become clingy and acting very fatal attraction-like. Most of the friends interviewed mentioned similar things about Jody still hanging around and fighting with Travis after they broke up. At this stage, most friends had been contacted for follow-up interviews, but Jody stated she no longer wanted to talk to investigators and that she wanted to consult an attorney. So the memory card had now come back from the lab on the 19th of June. It contained several photos and some had been deleted, which were later recovered. The first one was timestamped 5.22pm on the 4th of June and that was of Travis alive in the shower. Then a couple of photos seemed to have been taken by mistake. One photo at 5.33pm was of Travis lying on his back with large amounts of blood around his neck and shoulders. It also appeared to show the leg of a person standing over the body. The deleted photos were time stamped earlier that day at one forty pm and it showed Jodie lying nude on Travis's bed. There were eight deleted photos in total, six of Jodie and two of Travis. So this would indicate Jodie was lying about not seeing Travis since April and prove she was the last one to see him alive. On the 25th of June, Detective Flores interviews Jodie again. This time he knows she was with Travis on the day he was killed. Jody stated she left her home in Northern California on Tuesday the 3rd of June en route to Salt Lake City, Utah for a prepaid legal services conference. On Wednesday and Thursday of that same week, she said she rented a car in Redding, California and drove first to the Los Angeles area, Monterey, to see a friend. She never met up with the friend and continued on to Utah via Las Vegas, Nevada. When she left Los Angeles, California, her phone battery died and lost all contact with friends waiting for her in Utah. She was finally able to find a mobile phone charger while reaching Las Vegas, Nevada and finally made contact with her friends. She said she got lost and pulled over to the side of the road to sleep for a while. By the time she reached Salt Lake City, Utah, it was late morning on Thursday the 5th of June. She participated in the last day of the conference, then drove back home to Eureka, California late that night. While in Salt Lake City, she spent time with a person she identified as Ryan Burns. So according to Detective Flores, Jody and another source that he spoke to, Ryan Burns, that a trip from Eureka to Salt Lake City, Utah via Los Angeles, California and Las Vegas, Nevada took her about 48 hours. Flores calculated that the trip, using her route with a stop of about 10 hours to rest, that this trip should not have taken any more than 29 hours to complete. A similar trip through LA then to Mesa, Arizona and back up to Salt Lake City with 10 hours of rest would take approximately 37 hours to drive. This still leaves 10 to 11 hours of additional time for other activities. So police now have a confirmed time of death on 4th of June. Jodie was with him earlier on in the day, evidence from the photos on the camera. Her bloodied palm print is found in the bathroom and she's lying about her whereabouts during this time. Also her friend states she is missing over the period of time when Travis is killed. On July 9, 2008, Arias was indicted by a grand jury for the first-degree murder of Travis. She was arrested at her home on July 15 and extradited to Arizona on September 5. Arias pleaded not guilty on September 11. Jody gave three different accounts of her whereabouts. She originally told police that she'd not been in the home at the time of Travis's death. She later told police that two intruders had broken into Travis's home and that they murdered him and attacked her. Finally, two years after her arrest, she stated that she killed Travis in self-defence and she was a victim of domestic violence. There were a few other things investigators found out before the trial as well. On May 28, 2008, a burglary occurred at the residence of Jody's grandparents. She was living with them at this time. A .25 calibre gun belonging to the grandparents and other things were taken. The gun was never recovered. During her trial, the prosecutor would argue that the burglary was staged by Jody and the stolen gun was used to shoot Travis. Also, several days before the trip, Jody repeatedly contacted her ex-boyfriend Daryl Brewer asking to borrow two 5-gallon fuel cans for a trip to Arizona. The cans were not returned to Brewer. Dockets presented at trial also showed that Jodie had purchased a third five-gallon fuel can, sunblock and facial cleanser from Walmart in Salinas, California on June 3, 2008. That evening, at an Arco fuel station in Pasadena, California, she purchased eight gallons of gasoline with her debit MasterCard and four minutes later purchased nine gallons of fuel with cash. The MasterCard was used again on June 6, 2008 and also three times at a Tesoro gas station in Salt Lake City at a Pilot Flying J travel centre in Winnemooka, Nevada and a 7-Eleven in Sparks, Nevada. On June 2, 2008, Jody rented a Ford Focus in Redding, California about 100 miles south of her residence. She told the Budget Rent-A-Car staff that she would only be driving the car locally, but when the car was returned on June 7, it had been driven about 2,800 miles and it was also missing all of its floor mats and there were what looked like Kool-Aid stains on the front and rear seats. The car had been cleaned before police were able to examine it. Ryan Burns and others who met Jody in Utah after the killing indicated she had bandages on her hands and she wore long sleeves on days when it was very hot. She told different stories about how she received the cuts to her hands. Ryan was told they were from an injury while working at Margaritaville Restaurant, but at the trial it was revealed by Siskiyou County, California authorities that no such restaurant exists nor ever existed in the area. At the time of the killing, she actually worked at uh, Casa Ramos in Eureka. So she is convicted of first degree murder and she took the stand in her own defense, which apparently is a bit of a risky move by defendants. She was in the dock for about 18 days. Eventually, she's found guilty and was sentenced to life without parole. You can watch the trial on the internet if you really want to. It was a huge media v- event as she was the perfect candidate for the media. Beautiful girl kills successful ex-boyfriend in a jealous rage, or was it self-defence? So this is how it seemed to have gone down. Late on 3rd of June, Jody leaves Northern California and arrives at Travis's house about midday 4th of June. Her and Travis have sex and photos are taken. Later that day, while Travis is having a shower, Jodie shoots him in the face which incapacitates Travis for a moment, which gives her the opportunity to stab him in the back. She then turns him over and stabs him in the chest. She then cuts his throat from ear to ear, almost decapitating him. As this is happening, photos are being taken by mistake, maybe because it's the camera's around Jody's neck and there's a bit of a struggle. Jody then drags Travis into the shower and proceeds to clean up the bedclothes. She then puts his clothes in the wash with the camera after deleting the photos of her and Travis on the bed earlier that afternoon. At the trial, she says she was acting in self-defense and that Travis was abusive. But this doesn't add up as she'd broken up with him a year before and then she'd she'd moved closer to him. It looks like Travis was okay with her being a friend with benefits but I think Jody always wanted more and hoped one day maybe she would get back with Travis. She'd finally moved back to California so the Travis being abusive thing doesn't really make any sense as it seemed like he wasn't chasing Jody at all. The stolen gun from her grandparents was a .25 calibre which is fairly uncommon. The fact that Travis was shot by a gun of the same calibre, caliber, although circumstantial, it doesn't look good for Jody, especially as it shows a certain amount of premeditation on her part if, in fact, this was the gun that was stolen. the gun was, No guns were ever recovered. The grandparents' gun was never recovered and the gun to kill Travis was never recovered, whether or not they were the same thing. Also, she's tried to not let people know she's in Mesa, Arizona at all. This is why she's got the fuel can. She's using fuel that she's purchased outside so that she can get into Mesa and out without having having to actually purchase fuel in the area. She also lied about not being at Travis's. Then she changed that story to one where Travis and her were attacked after realising investigators knew she was with him on the day of his murder. Finally, her third story was that she killed him in self-defence. Jodie still sticks by a story, and there are websites out there that raise money for her, such as JusticeForJody.com, which uh, basically uh, push her side of the story. One of the terrible aspects of this crime is the fact that Travis's privacy is also a victim. His private life is dragged through the public court system by defence attorneys trying to make him out to be some sort of arsehole ex-boyfriend who's abusive towards her. Whether any of these allegations are true or not, he can't defend himself. Look, the case was huge in the media and her first trial was televised live. And I see it as a classic case of stalking. So where did Jodie go wrong? Well, if you're going to steal your grandma's gun, at least swap it for a different one of a different calibre before shooting your boyfriend in the face. Next, pay cash for everything you need and don't borrow fuel cans from friends. Don't leave bloodied palm prints in the bathroom. Washing machines, they don't delete photos. Deleting photos does not delete photos. Take that memory card with you. Don't use friends as alibis and then do dodgy stuff like disappear on them for a day and then turn up with bandages on your hands. Lay off on the repeated stabbing as this indicates a crime of passion as stabbing is so close up and personal. It also is messy and leads to the issue like the bloodied palm print being left behind. Don't change your story three times. People will see you as as a liar and especially the jury will see you as a liar. Don't take the stand. This can only harm you. But it does make great TV. So I'll leave it there. There's plenty of docos on the web and plenty of places to get a bit more detail. And it is quite an interesting uh, saga. So this has been True Crime Island, another true crime podcast podcast. Look, I'll try to get more episodes out more frequently, but this is a one-man show at the moment. My plan is to eventually get them out every week, but at the moment, every two weeks is about all I can do. There are links to Facebook and Twitter on the website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can comment on anything you like. Just keep it civil and constructive soon i'll be on itunes and i'll sort out an rss feed link as well for your podcast software i'm just starting to get my head around this square space a website thing and i just at the moment want to keep it simple and uh, usable so true crime islanders clear your browser history and crack open another beer this is cambo your host signing off